0: Hey gang, JV here. Due to its length, this episode of Beyond Reality has been divided into two parts. This is part two, in which we talk about Tim Cohen's book, The Antichrist in a Cup of Tea, in which Tim not only claims the Antichrist is already among us, he actually identifies him. Both are fascinating discussions, so please enjoy them and thank you for your support. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Our guest, Tim Cohen, author of several books, including The Antichrist and a Cup of Tea. We're going to be talking about that next. But before we do, just a quick reminder, go to YouTube if you haven't found our YouTube channel yet. And subscribe. Just search for J.V. Johnson when you find it. Hit the subscribe button. There's no obligation, no fee. It's all free. And there's about 550 or so back episodes of Beyond Reality on the YouTube channel for your viewing and listening pleasure. Uh, In addition to that, hit the uh, notification icon. That way you will be notified when we stream live or we upload bonus content, whatever it happens to be. So, a great opportunity to participate in our uh, online community. We have a great chat room that is active during the live streams of the program. Like I said, we have a bunch of back episodes there for you as well. Conversely, if you do uh, watch in any other fashion, um, YouTube or otherwise, check out the podcast version of Beyond Reality. That is available on every major podcast platform. It's actually Beyond Reality Paranormal, it's very easy to find. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all of the major podcast platforms. And you could subscribe. That way it's automatically downloaded to your smart device and you're on a trip, you're commuting, you're on the train, whatever it happens to be. You can listen and get caught up with the show. It's a great way to do that. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. So once again, tonight we're talking with uh, Tim Cohen. Tim uh, has written several books. We were talking about uh, the uh, book, um, North Korea, Iran, and the Coming World War. And now we're going to turn our attention to The Antichrist and a Cup of Tea. Tim, you wrote this book in 1998. There's a new edition coming out. What made you write this one?
1: Actually, I began this one while I was a cadet still at oh, the wow. Air Force Academy in wow. 1987. Yeah, and uh, so that's really where it began. Uh I was uh, less than a year as a believer at that point, and I had uh, finally read through the New Testament a little more than two times, two-plus times, we'll say, and uh, a portion of the Old Testament. And as I was reading the book of Revelation again uh, one time there at the academy, uh, between classes, uh, I came across this strange imagery again in Revelation 13 where it talks about a beast with feet like a bear, body like a leopard, mouth like a lion, Uh, to whom a dragon, in this case a fiery red dragon, identified as Satan uh, in the scriptures, gives his power, throne, and great authority. You know, and then goes on to talk about a man being represented by this symbolism whose name calculates to 666. And I thought, okay, weird imagery. You know, God, what is this about? And I prayed. I asked God to show me who and what this was talking about, because obviously there's no creature like that. Uh, in nature. And within a month, uh, J.V., of having uh, literally prayed and asked God to show me, I had in my hands the coat of arms that is on the front cover of the Antichrist of and, and at that time, you know, 1987, only one other book, uh, just one other book in the whole world, had that coat of arms in it. And that was uh, Boutel's Heraldry, And it happened to be that this small bookshelf of books on heraldry, the Cadet Library at the Academy, just happened to have that one book on heraldry, and the coat of arms was in it. So, at any rate, I found out pretty quickly, uh, the Lord led me to it, that the imagery literally exists. And it has existed since 1969, which is when it was first unveiled to the world. So it is the calling card, if you will of the individual who is actually foretold to be the Antichrist in Scripture. And that means that that person, the Prince of Roman lineage, is alive today. And so I knew this uh, while I was still at the Academy, and I thought, man, if this is real, then we can't have that long. And of course, at that time, I hadn't yet done my volume on biblical chronology that is in uh, another series of books of mine called Messiah History and the Tribulation Period, which I'm still completing. I began that at the academy also. That's getting close. But I hadn't done the chronology yet, and so I had no idea, you know, how long we really had till the Lord's return, till the second advent of Christ. And I thought, you know, if the antichrist is alive now, and this evidence says he is, then uh, maybe it would behoove me to leave the academy. So I actually quit six months before graduation. I was close to graduation, and left the academy to do nothing but focus I'm getting these books done, and even then it took 11 years, almost, wow. to get the first edition of the Antichrist and a Cup of Tea out, and now I'm completing the second edition.
0: So you had the coat of arms. You hadn't done uh, the chronology uh, yet, but what does the chronology tell us? If, if the Antichrist is walking among us today, what does that mean for this biblical clock?
1: Well, when we talk about chronology, there are people, even in church today, who will say, you know, Christians have been saying forever, you know, that Jesus could come back at any time. And for that reason, not taking claims seriously when Christians say, you know, we're getting close, we're in the last days, the global stage is set for the fulfillment of Bible prophecy and Armageddon and all the rest that precedes it. People don't take that seriously because of misapplied chronologies, by and large, historically. So we have a situation, for example, where in the 5th, 6th century time frame, A.D., you had an expectation in Christian writings that Christ's return had to be very near. But most people don't understand today why that expectation was in place. And then a 1,000 years later, around the time of the Protestant Reformation, same thing again, only they switched the expectation because at that time they were thinking you know, the Roman Catholic Church was... That we were nearing the end of the year six, uh, excuse me 7,000 on the biblical chronology that 's what they thought, and therefore the eternal state, the new heavens, and new earth, should come. but it didn't. and so the Protestant Reformation happened, and again, chronology was discredited. and then with the Protestant Reformation, people started to look toward the year 2000. and all of that J.V. had to do with chronology. So what happened in the early church was they were relying upon the chronology in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And what they didn't realize, those who didn't speak Hebrew, which was most of the Church pretty soon, you know, after the Church was formed, uh, they didn't realize that the chronology was mistranslated in the Septuagint. It was off by nearly 1,500 years. So when they were getting to the early 6th century AD, they believed they were nearing the year 6,000 on the chronology, and based on tradition, rabbinic tradition, yeah, and Scripture, they believed that that meant that Christ's thousand-year reign, a millennial kingdom, had to begin very soon, and that the Antichrist, therefore, had to be very soon and in their day, you know, soon to appear. None of that happened, and what happened when it didn't occur is the Roman Catholic Church said, okay, the thousand-year reign of Christ uh, must not be literal. You know, his millennial reign must be something that's spiritual and accomplished instead among mankind through the church. And so they thought, okay, the church is going to reign in Christ's dead for the next thousand years. And that's how the millennial kingdom is actually going to occur. And, of course, you had other Christians saying, no, that's apostasy, that can't be what the scripture means. And so this argument uh, may, you know, occurred and lasted for a long time. And then a thousand years later, when... Uh, On that same chronology, they were thinking, okay, we're nearing the end of the thousand-year reign, the eternal state must be near, and the new heavens and new earth must be near. You know what you read about occurring at the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, When that didn't happen, the Protestant Reformation occurred. We're talking early 16th century now. Mm -hmm. And they went back to the Hebrew chronology, the original chronology. And on the original chronology, we're actually nearing the year 6000 now. And so, you have an expectation in the Protestant church and among those who are familiar with chronology that we must be getting close to Christ's thousand year reign. And we know from prophecy and scripture that the Great Tribulation and World War III and so forth precede Christ's thousand year reign. So, these things must be on the near horizon. And all of that is significant because now, for the first time ever in history, there's actually a human being alive who has the literal imagery that even Christians didn't think was literal, the literal imagery of Revelation 13 associated with him, and whose name and title does actually calculate to 666, and not on some contrived system, but on the actual biblical numbering system. So there's a lot of things that are happening now that have never been true historically before that says, okay, we've got this chronology that indicates it should be soon, but now we've got more. Than just that it says it has to be soon we've got someone alive now who can fulfill the scriptures to be the Antichrist.
0: you've done a lot of work in looking through the scripture and trying to determine who this person might be, and you've you've reached conclusions
1: well, say I didn't determine you know I asked God to show me who and what was being spoken of in that chapter, and to be perfectly honest, this was a point in my life where history was born. The only reason history ever became interesting to me as a person was because of Scripture and because I had become a Christian, and to try to understand the past to inform, you know, what I was learning about today and this world and what's coming in the future. And in that context, I knew nothing, J.V. at that time, back in 1987, about royalty, you know, say the royal houses of the world or the histories of any royal family, et cetera. I knew nothing of that. And God basically dropped in my lap, I'll say, the coat of arms, the imagery, you know, that's there in Revelation 13, the name calculation and other things that I haven't mentioned yet, but other things that are all addressed in Scripture to say, okay, here's the person that these things are talking about. He's alive now. And so I didn't actually have to figure it out. Instead, God showed me who it was, and I had to, from that point, research that individual and flesh out the information that then went into the first edition of the Antichrist and the Cup of Tea.
0: How are you presented with the coat of arms?
1: Was uh, it a you mental, know, initially... Was, was it a mental uh,
0: image, or did, did you, did, were you directed to something?
1: I was directed. So, you know, I had, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Hebrew Christian, right? So that means I'm an Israelite Christian. I actually am a Cohen by birth. Uh, my mother and that whole side of my family came out of Egypt during the 1956 Suez Canal Conflict. Uh, that involved Israel and Egypt and so on, as Jewish refugees, with just the clothes on their back, basically. They had been a very wealthy family in Egypt, and the Egyptian government confiscated everything, took everything and let them flee with their lives, basically. And they went through Europe, and then eventually made their way to the United States. And I, you know, becoming a Christian at the Air Force Academy, in that home church, uh, then got connected by some of the uh, pastors there at the academy, cadet chaplains, uh, with Jews for Jesus, and from there got connected with uh, a Messianic congregation in Colorado Springs, which I began to attend. In other words, a congregation that had uh, some other uh, Israelite believers like myself. And in that church, uh, one day, the assistant pastor, who was a fellow who at that time worked for Martin Marietta, doing classified work, uh, presented an unofficial version of this coat of arms that's on the cover of my book. He didn't have the official one. And presented a name calculation that was popped out of a computer program that he and some of his fellow engineers at Martin Marietta wrote where they wanted to do name calculations using the biblical numbering system just to see what would pop out. And they threw in the names of a bunch of world leaders and a bunch of global royalty and so forth. And one name came out as 666. And from that he went, this engineer did it, and found the unofficial version of this person's coat of arms, and that's what he showed us in a Bible study one afternoon after services at his home. And I thought, wow, you know, and this was within a month of me having prayed for God to show me who and what was being spoken of uh, in Revelation 13. And so I went back that afternoon to the academy and proceeded to the cadet library to look up books on heraldry, and I'd never looked at a book on heraldry in, in, in my life. I'd never looked at the topic in my life prior to that. And they had this bookshelf of, I don't know, maybe 30 books, probably not that many, actually, maybe 20, on heraldry. And one was this book called Boutel's Heraldry. And so I started to thumb through that. And lo and behold, it had the official coat of arms in it, first unveiled to the world in 1969. And by the way, J.V., that was the most widely viewed event in the history of the world. at The time where it was unveiled. So we're talking about the investiture, and I'll just say who it is, of Prince Charles. Charles, Prince of Wales his investiture had an estimated television audience of uh, more than half a billion people, which for 1969 was huge. You know, and it was only rivaled by the Apollo uh, 11 mission to the moon, you know, within the same month, you know, four-week time frame. So uh, at the investiture, uh, prior to that, uh, in 1958... The Investiture was July of 1969. Eleven years earlier, the red dragon, which is also on this coat of arms, and it's the same red dragon spoken of in Revelation, which is identified as Satan and as the serpent who deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden, in Revelation chapter 12. So the preceding chapter, that particular red dragon was seen all over the castle walls at the investiture, and in July, excuse me, in 1958, it was adopted as the national symbol of Wales. So, the United States, for example, you know, we've got the eagle, right, on the dollar bill? Yep. It's one side of our seal for the United States, and it represents our country. It's the heraldic symbol of this country. Well, Wales adopted Satan as its national symbol in 1958, literally. <laughs> and that red dragon, you know, when Prince Charles was being invested as Prince of Wales or Prince of the Red Dragon, was all over the place at the investiture, as was his full official coat of arms, first seen by the world at that time, which has the red dragon as part of its symbolism on it. But it also has a beast with feet like a bear, body like a leopard, mouth like a lion. In other words, that imagery described in Revelation 13. And Prince Charles was actually facing that red dragon when the crown was put on his head to coronate him Prince of Wales or Prince of the Red Dragon. And his mother, who put the crown on his head, you know who was facing the opposite castle wall, and this was an open-air castle. Okay. By the way, this is the actual castle of Arthur, and the lead, and the uh, you know the round table, yeah. the mm-hmm. legends, the mythology, and all mm-hmm. that. Uh, I documented in the second edition of the Antichrist Encyclopedia, the, the one that's coming out, and I mentioned it in the first edition, but I I go further into it in the second. That that is the actual historical castle. You know from which that mythology derives. So it was significant that Prince Charles was invested there, but his mother was facing the Red Dragon on the opposite castle wall. You know, so they were both facing it as the crown was put on his head to coronate him Prince of Wales. Now that's the imagery in Revelation 13. I haven't mentioned the Old Testament, but the Old Testament also speaks to this. So in Revelation 13, this beast that represents a man, this beast with feet like a bear, body like a leopard, mouth like a lion. Oh, sorry, let me (laughs) start. It's okay. There you go. So anyway, this beast is given authority to rule over the world for three and a half years. You know, this is the reign that Christians talk about for the Antichrist that precedes Christ's return. In Daniel seven in the Old Testament, there's another individual who's really the same individual, but who is described with completely different imagery, who reigns for that same three and a half year period. And in Daniel seven This uh, same individual is described as a little horn with the eyes of a man. Okay, now in context, in Daniel's day, that would have been a unicorn with human eyes. And that, too, is on this same coat of arms. So all the imagery comes together on this coat of arms, and it's unique under international law to Prince Charles. And so for the first time, that means we can legitimately try to do the calculation. For the Antichrist, And I say for the first time because the imagery is a required prerequisite to even attempting to do the calculation. The scripture says it is the number of the beast before it says it is the number of a man in Revelation 13. So all these times historically, J.V., where Christians and others have tried to do name calculations and said, Oh, so-and-so's name calculates the 666. I think they might be the Antichrist. Well, first of all, most of the time they've invented or contrived a numbering system to do the calculation. That's not legitimate. The scripture actually identifies for us the system we're supposed to use. Secondly, they've done it for individuals who didn't have the imagery. You know, that imagery of the first beast in Revelation 13. So they did it out of context. The calculations were invalid regardless of how they worked out. Even if they used the right system, which they didn't most of the time, the calculations were not valid. But in this case, we've got someone who has the imagery, and we can validly do the calculation. And I've used the biblical numbering system and shown that the title, Charles, Prince of Wales, by which Prince Charles is globally known, calculates to 666 not only in English, but also in Hebrew, in multiple languages, the same system, the original biblical system. And statistically, that isn't possible. It can't ever happen. But it's reality it has happened. And so I show that in the book along with a lot of other things. You know that say for the first time like I pointed out we have somebody who can be the antichrist and you know Prince Charles has been at the forefront of the world's major events for decades. He's been the number one globalist behind the scenes since 1969. Well that was going so to be was that disgusting. was going to
0: be my next question. He you know he doesn't seem to be in the spotlight at least in the news i watch. Um, he kind of seems to be a background figure. But I'm I'm assuming that that's not true. Or if it is true, he's doing something in the background.
1: Well, you know, if I give you a few examples, you'll say, oh, yeah, he did that. And then you'll say, oh, wow, I didn't know he did that. So I'll give you some. You know, these are in the book along with others. So the United Nations has a global security program. And as part of that, it has a global security lecture series. Prince Charles initiated the program, and gave the first lecture for the Global Security Lecture Series at the United Nations. He did that. Prince Charles handed over Hong Kong to communist China. The estimated audience was over a billion people. He did that. Prince Charles married Princess Diana, who, in mythology, if you just go by the name, is the goddess of the water, the goddess of witchcraft. It was at what was after his investiture the next most widely viewed event. In the history of the world publicly. Estimated audience of 750 million plus. That was Prince Charles at the center of that. More recently, you had, for example, uh, President Trump pulling us out of uh, some of the global climate efforts, the global climate talks. Mm -hmm. And before that, the Obama administration trying to participate in the talks in uh, Copenhagen, right, which went nowhere. And then after that, the Paris Climate Talks, just as President uh, Trump was coming into office, right? Well, that whole thing goes back to the Rio Earth Summit of the early uh, 1990s. And at the Rio Earth Summit, Prince Charles, before the summit was hailed as success, organized meetings aboard the Royal Yacht Britannia for all the major participants, including the president of Brazil, Al Gore was there. All the major participants were there, and Prince Charles organized that whole thing, and he chaired the meetings. And as a consequence of the Rio Earth Summit being a quote-unquote success among the globalists, Prince Charles was credited for the success of the Rio Earth Summit by all these leaders. And out of the Rio Earth Summit came the Kyoto Protocol with Japan, which the United States did not sign. Then there was this effort with the Copenhagen talks, which the United States did not uh, really go for very much. It did with Obama, but it went nowhere. And then you got the Paris climate talks, just as President Trump was coming into office. Well, at the Paris climate talks, you had the largest gathering of international leaders in the entire history of the world in one location ever. So you had 190-plus world leaders at the Paris climate talks. 150-plus heads of state. And so you would think that since it was hosted by France, that it would have been the president of France who would have opened it, right? And given the first speech at the event. Or some other head of state, maybe Obama, right? Sure. Somebody like that. That seems logical. But no, it was Prince Charles. Wow. He opened it, and he gave the first speech, And at the group photo, he was in the very center of the photo of everyone. He was the head honcho for the whole thing, in reality. But who talked about that in the news?
0: Yeah, it wasn't discussed.
1: You know, and as another example, we've got all this talk around this peace process with Israel, right? We have now for decades. You know, people realize that this today goes back to the quartet, what's called the quartet. And from the Quartet, uh, and I'll mention who the Quartet is in a moment, it goes back to the Oslo process and the Oslo Accords. Not a lot of people realize where it goes from there. Prior to the Oslo Accords, it went to the Madrid Peace Talks. And before the Madrid Peace Talks, it went to the London Agreement of 1987. And the London Agreement of 1987 was between... Jordan's King Hussein, the one who's now deceased, his son, Abdullah, is reigning in his place over Jordan. But the London Agreement in 1987 was between Jordan's King Hussein and Israel's Shimon Peres, who is now, of course, deceased, right? Right. Well, who orchestrated those talks? Prince Charles did. And in fact, they were organized by one of his lawyers, the Lord Victor Mishkan. Prince Charles set that whole thing in motion. And the London Agreement of 19—and by the way, Jordan's King Hussein and Perez were both personal friends of Prince Charles. Uh, King Hussein and his son Abdullah were both educated in London, both friends of Prince Charles. But at any rate, uh, Shimon Perez was the second with Yitzhak Shamir at that time, who was Israel's premier back then. And Yitzhak Shamir would have none of it, so the agreement got shelved. And the agreement led nonetheless to the Madrid Peace Conference in Spain, and then subsequently to the Oslo process when Perez became second under Yitzhak Rabin, who was the assassinated prime minister in Israel, and revived the London Agreement of 1987, which in turn led to Oslo 1, 2, and 3. And between Oslo 2 and 3, 3 not having actually come to pass, in other words, these were planned agreements on a time frame. Oslo three never actually came to pass. But between those two agreements, two and three, uh, there was the peace treaty with Jordan that got signed. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, the Oslo process collapsed. You know, Oslo 3 didn't come to pass, and it was organized around security negotiations and then supposed peace negotiations. Well, the Quartet came into place, as the successor to the Oslo process. And the Quartet involves the United Nations, the United States, Russia in place of the Soviet Union now, and then the European Union, and they call that the Quartet. But because the UN is in there, it's really all the nations of the world, right? Right. Well, the Quartet was headed by Tony Blair, who was under Prince Charles. (laughs) Until the last few years, and now another British subject of Prince Charles is heading the quartet. So all of this effort is still under Prince Charles. And when Rabin was assassinated at his funeral, Prince Charles attended. When Shimon Peres died, Prince Charles attended the funeral. These were both unofficial visits to Israel by Prince Charles. And to that point in time, in fact, until recently... No one in the modern British monarchy had ever officially visited the nation of Israel, even though they had officially visited all the surrounding nations, all of the adversaries of Israel. But not Israel. Except that Prince Charles went, and by the way, was front and center for both of these funerals, for Perez and for Rabin. And Perez, though, before he died, had become a knight of Prince Charles, one of his knights. So again, all of this was under Prince Charles and still is. So these things and many others are documented in the Antichrist and the Cup of Tea. The whole Middle East peace process is under Prince Charles, and yet the public has no idea. Even what uh, is happening with the United States now, with the Trump administration, you know, I don't know if you noticed this, but they were going to unveil the administration's proposal, its initiative, uh, recently in conjunction with, and in Israel, in conjunction with the Holocaust uh, Day, World Holocaust uh, Day, I forget exactly what it's called, World World Holocaust Forum uh, event, I believe. At any rate, they were going to unveil it there, and Jared Kushner was going to travel to Israel for that purpose, in addition to attending that event. Well, at that event, for the first time, you had the major aggressors toward Israel, in other words, the primary nations responsible for the genocide, the Nazi genocide toward Israel in World War II. Their current leadership spoke at that event. But in place of, uh, for example, Boris Johnson for Great Britain, instead of him speaking, it was Prince Charles who spoke. And Prince Charles flat out gave the best speech of anybody there. I mean, it was a fantastic, moving speech. And he endeared himself to Israel's population with that speech. And it was his first official visit ever to Israel. But because he was there, and immediately met afterwards with uh, Abbas for the the quote-unquote Palestinians to talk about the peace process. It's actually what he talked about with Abbas, you know, subsequent to that, immediately after his speech. Because he was there, Jerry Kushner backed out at the last minute and didn't go. And so the Trump administration unveiled its initiative subsequently. So the point is, even though there's not complete agreement with, uh, say, Prince Charles, for example, or the government of Great Britain, the U.K., uh, in terms of what the Trump administration is proposing and trying to bring to pass for some sort of treaty between Israel and the quote-unquote Palestinians, nonetheless, Prince Charles is still over the effort. So, in other words, moving the stuff behind the scenes. Christians, J.V., don't know what I'm sharing with you in the audience today. By and large, even though I've been talking about this you know, on and off since 1998, when the book was published, and had the second edition coming out, most Christians aren't aware yet. And, you know, there are things that have happened since the first edition came out. So I shared with you, and perhaps you can share it with the audience, the statue, you know, to Prince Charles which hails him as Savior of the world, you know, with outstretched wings?
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah. Well, this book was published in 1998, the first edition. One of the things that's foretold in Scripture concerning the Antichrist is that an idol will be erected in a newly constructed holy place on the Temple Mount, or near it, but presumably on it, in Israel, uh, just over, you know, just before the three and a half years begin that precede christ returned armageddon so in other words there's no holy place yet it doesn't exist but the scriptures prophesy that there will be one and that an idol will be erected to the antichrist who we've been talking about at that time in the holy place instead of the cherubim or angelic statues that were placed around the ark of the covenant in the ancient temples of israel so instead of those angelic statues an idol will be put in their place to the Antichrist. Well, uh, in the early 2000s, years after the first edition of the Antichrist, Nicopati was published, uh, you know, and obviously several years after the Lord showed me who was, the statue was created, wow. and it was created in two versions. So a miniature version was actually photographed by the BBC, and that's the photo I shared with you yep. that you can share with your audience. The BBC photographed this thing and reported on it, And it was a government in central Brazil, the government of Tocantins, that commissioned this thing. And they did it to hail Prince Charles, literally, as the environmental savior of the world. Because of the Rio Earth Summit and these other things that I shared, and for other reasons, you know, other activities environmentally of uh, Prince Charles and the British monarchy. But the statue has inscribed on its base, savior of the world, literally, And it shows Prince Charles with outstretched wings as an angelic figure. It's got his face standing atop a mass of human bodies looking up to him as Savior. And dressed only in a loincloth. So here's an interesting factoid. The idol in Scripture in the book of Daniel is where it's initially described in the Old Testament. I show in the second edition of the Antichrist Nicopati that that exact statue is the one that's described. So in other words, not just any angelic statue, but a statue dressed only in a loincloth, the root words of the Hebrew text of the prophecy in Daniel 9 in the Old Testament actually speak to that. And you cannot get that from an English translation, in a normal English translation, but you can from the original Hebrew. So in other words, years after the book was published, the statue was created, and nobody's ever seen the full-size version, but the BBC did report on the size of the full-size version. And it is arguably the same size, the same height, as the cherubim statues that went around the Ark of the Covenant in Israel's ancient temples. So somewhere today, in some warehouse, the full-size version of that statue, which looks identical to the one that you have photographed, you know, the, mm-hmm. the smaller one that was photographed, the full-size version of that is just waiting somewhere to be placed, erected, I believe, in a newly constructed holy place in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount some years from now. No one else in the world has a statue like that. No one else in the world has a statue calling them savior of the world. You know. And this one has Prince Charles' face. And it matches what the Hebrew text describes for the statue. How can that happen? Unless this is real. So, you know, these things and others all say we are finally, for the first time in history, in the time period where these things will really be fulfilled. And... We're on the fast track. And consequently, you know, that's why I wrote North Korea and Iran in the coming world war. But I also have a companion series of books called uh, Israel, quote-unquote, Peace and the Coming World War. The Great Tribulation is near. Uh, coming out, I have a book on the Exodus from ancient Egypt where I actually identify the pharaohs and who, adopt, who uh, Moses' adoptive mother actually was in ancient Egypt's history. I have more information on that and archaeologists have, and I have put that together uh, in a book that's coming out on the Exodus, so that Israel, modern Israel, will realize that the Exodus from Egypt was an actual historical event. You know, JV, most of modern Israel's population does not believe that. They think the Exodus was a myth, just like the Arabs around them think it was a myth. And for that reason, they're willing to negotiate away the land. They don't necessarily believe that they really had more right to it, you know, or some divine right from God to it that the other nations don't have. And so they're willing to negotiate it because they don't believe in their own history. And so I'm going to show with this book that the history is real. You know, and then, of course, I'm dealing with a series of books that's going to shake the world uh, on non-terrestrial life, what's really out there in our solar system, uh, coming soon. I'm going to expose the things that the public has not been told.
0: Tim, how does um, this translate into Prince Charles becoming ruler of the world? Is this related to the One World Government,
1: uh, the alien thing, or just the Antichrist? No,
0: no. I'm, I'm talking about um, in order for Prince Charles, if he's the Antichrist, to fulfill prophecy and to become, you know, fulfill that role, he becomes leader of the world, right? I mean, if I'm understanding it correctly.
1: Sort of. So Scripture describes a scenario in which there are ten kings or rulers, described both in Daniel, uh, for example, chapter 7, as well as Revelation 13, uh, also Revelation 17 and 18. But a scenario where there are ten kings or ten rulers, uh, divided into two groups of five. And a little horn, they're described also as horns. A little horn with human eyes, which is that unicorn with human eyes, comes up among them and uproots three of the ten. That's the scenario painted in Daniel chapter 7 for us. And people have looked at that passage historically and said, okay, does the Antichrist kill three of them? Uh, What does this mean? Three of the ten are uprooted. Are there just eight afterwards? Well, the scripture indicates that all the way to the point of Christ's return, There are still ten. So it means that those ten are still around, even though three get uprooted. And when we look at the ten in Daniel, they're also described as ten toes, five toes on each of two legs, on the feet of each of two legs. In a statue that King Nebuchadnezzar, the ancient king of Babylon, one of them, uh, had in a vision and was interpreted. And these ten toes uh, would be representative of these same ten kings. But we know from that statue, That they're divided into two groups of five representing East and West. And historically, this was fulfilled as the division of the Eastern Roman Empire or of the Roman Empire into Eastern and Western, so Eastern and Western Roman Empires. And so we can look at the ten today and say, okay, there's got to be a division of East and West between the ten, five each. And somehow, three of the ten have to come under the direct authority, in other words, become vassals of. The little horn of the eyes of a man, this individual who is the Antichrist, so that there are still ten, but effectively he's the eighth among seven, if you will. He's in direct control of three of the ten. So with that scenario, for decades now, the United Nations, which has five permanent members, has talked about reforming and altering the composition and makeup of the Security Council. Currently it's got five permanent members, 15 members that rotate, uh, ten of which rotate on and off the Council five who are always there. Mm -hmm. And the discussion has been, okay, how do we want to uh, alter the council to make it more representative of the nations of the world and more fair to the rest of the world? And the main thing that keeps coming up again and again is to expand it to 10 permanent members. There have been other suggestions, but every few years they come back around to this idea of expanding it to 10 permanent members. And they've already identified some of the new five, Concretely, so they know that Japan will be one of the new five. Germany will be one of the new five. They've debated the other three between, uh, primarily uh, India, Brazil, Egypt, and, uh, Italy. Those are the others that they've primarily debated for the other three of the new five. But the point is if Germany and Japan, end up on an expanded Security Council where there are 10 members, then three of the 10 will be from the European Union, Germany, France, and England. And additionally, five will be from the West and five from the East, as we think of the East-West Division in the world today. And the diplomatic missions, while there's been a European Union involving the U.K., of Germany, France, and England have effectively been unified, more or less, as one mission between those three countries, because the British monarchy, genealogically speaking, is the monarchy of all three nations historically. You know, their name was saxe coburg Gotha, for example. Uh, before World War II, they changed their name to the House of Windsor because of what happened in World War, World War I, where you had Germany fomenting World Wars I and Two, and this was a family that had a German name, and they needed to make it more Anglicized, more English, and so they changed it to the House of Windsor. But really, they're a Greek monarchy, a French monarchy, an English monarchy, and a German monarchy, and more. uh, Really, that's what they are. So if the European Union were to choose a monarchy for itself at some point, it would flat out, no contest, be the British monarchy. Regardless, even if the UK successfully has Brexit and really does exit the EU within the next few months or by the end of this year, it still would be the British monarchy. But here's the scenario. So Prince Charles, since his investiture in July of 69, has been publicly saying that he wants to be the king of Europe. He has not said that he wants to be the king of England. And to this day, his mother has stayed on the throne. She's the longest reigning monarch in all of British history, you know, and the oldest reigning monarch in all of British history, too. You would think that she would relinquish the throne and give it to Prince Charles, but instead... There's been talk about bypassing Prince Charles and giving it to William, one of his sons, uh, if she dies or decides to relinquish the throne, or her hanging on to it till her natural death. Uh, Now, it's the title, Charles, Prince of Wales, so it's as Prince of Wales, that title, that calculates the 666. And for that reason, I contended in the first edition of the Antichrist and Cup of Tea, way back when, as well as in the current edition that's coming out. Uh, that Prince Charles would remain Prince of Wales and probably never become the King of England. But if he became King of England, he would need to acquire some new title that still calculates to 666 on the biblical numbering system to be the Antichrist. Or, you know, the Great Tribulation could begin, and he could begin his three-and-a-half-year reign as the Antichrist possessed by Satan before uh, he became King of England. And then afterwards, if he became King of England, it wouldn't matter. Right? So... The point is, uh, we could wake up one day where the Security Council has been expanded to 10 permanent members. That could happen at any time. Right. Nobody would be surprised, really, by that. Yeah, there's been talk of it literally for decades, since the early 80s, at least, uh, publicly. Uh, and then another day we could wake up and find out that the British monarchy has been adopted as the monarchy of Europe. Or that the British, uh, the uh, excuse me, the diplomatic missions of Germany, France, and England are still unified, so that Prince Charles is in direct control of three of the ten—Germany, France, and England—and that's all it would take, JV, to fulfill the requirements biblically for the rise to power of the Antichrist over the global government. Well, wow. so it could happen so quickly and so seemingly by stealth that hardly anyone would notice. And yet, literally fulfill what Scripture says.
0: What do we? We're, we're going to run out of time here, Tim. But what do we do? I mean, we're hearing this, we're considering it. Um, we don't have the ability to affect it in any way. What should we be doing?
1: Well, you know, there are people who want to think, who would like to think that it's possible to thwart or change biblical prophecy, in other words, for it not to come to pass, to establish some different future from what scripture says will occur. I don't happen to be one of those people. I don't think it's possible to do that. I believe God is sovereign over history like everything else, and he's going to make sure it comes to pass. And so what we should do from that perspective is uh, learn who God is, become actual Christians so that if we die, we don't end up somewhere other than heaven. And secondly, prepare to live in what's going to be a very rough world you know, until Christ comes. And Scripture indicates that during the Great Tribulation, uh, which primarily concerns Israel rather than the world, even though World War III will be kicked off before that. In other words, the wars of North Korea and Iran will commence before the Great Tribulation comes, before the last three and a half years begin. But uh, even with that, the Great Tribulation primarily concerns the nation of Israel, and specifically the geographic area of Judea, which is where most of modern Israel's population resides. And the Scripture says that two-thirds of Israel in the land of Judea will die during the Great Tribulation. So it's going to be very horrible, almost tantamount to a new Holocaust for Israelites who are in that geographic territory. Beyond that... Uh, when we get closer to the end of the Great Tribulation, meaning the last three and a half years preceding Christ's return, and then Armageddon itself, the judgments that God will allow to come upon the world, and I'm talking about things that aren't uh, necessarily in human control. So, in other words, it gets beyond uh, us using weapons of war and nukes and whatever else. It goes past that into the arena of uh, things that are beyond our control, like comet and asteroid strikes, for example, uh, presumably super volcanic eruptions, earthquakes that will shake the planet itself completely at the same time so that the entire planet will shake on its axis at the same time, and that the cities of the nations globally will be toppled at the same time everywhere. So we're talking about natural disasters that God will allow that are so extreme that by the time we get to Armageddon itself and in the end of Armageddon, possibly, arguably, realistically, two-thirds of all humanity will be dead. Mm. So it's very bad what's coming. And so the best thing any of us can do is get to know God and pray that he will be gracious to us and have us somewhere where we will have provision. And there will be people, scripturally, who have provision for whom God provides. Uh, And he will guide us, you know, what we in our individual situations and our individual lives need personally to do for ourselves and our loved ones and our friends and so forth, uh, to prepare for what's coming and to try to survive it, if that's God's will. And then thirdly, of course, to share the truth with others, which is, you know, what I'm doing. Before I became a Christian JV, I considered myself to be an atheist. That's what I told people, and I didn't know better. I was really an agnostic, but I, at that time, didn't even know the difference in the definitions, and I should have. I didn't. And so I was not somebody living his life for God. I was this new age pagan, and that's who I was. And I was fine with that. I didn't know any better. But the reality is, as we get closer to all these things, and the world is seeing uh, the things that Christians like me are talking about actually happening and coming to pass, they have to look at this thing and say, okay, why do Christians know about this, and no one else is talking about it? And why is it that not all Christians know about this, only some seem to know about it. You know who are talking about it, you know like me, for example. You know, what is it that they're hooked into if you will that everyone else isn't? Why isn't Islam talking about this? Why is non-believing Judaism, you know, not talking about this? Why are Hindus and Buddhists and so forth not talking about these things in specific terms? So for example, real prophecy a real christian can tell you specific things like i can tell you that when the great tribulation begins before it starts and as it starts israel is going to be successfully attacked and the entire city of jerusalem is going to be encircled by the militaries of israel's adversaries and half of the city not the whole city only half of it the half that has the temple mount area meaning the old city of jerusalem Mm -hmm. is going to be taken captive by force in war from israel And that Israelite captives are going to be carried away as far as Babylon in Iraq. And you know, Saddam Hussein was rebuilding before he died the ancient capitals of Nineveh for Assyria and Babylon for Babylonia there in Iraq. So you're going to have captives in Israel carried away as far as this area, Babylon, that Saddam Hussein had been rebuilding in Iraq. Literally a new Babylonian captivity during that three-and-a-half-year period of the Great Tribulation in which two-thirds of Israel and Judea is going to die. So those are very specific things that I'm sharing. Not like what you would hear from somebody, say, doing an astrological chart or some psychic somewhere, you know, foretelling things. And, you know, 99.9% of the time, things that psychics say are going to come to pass don't. So even when they're being specific. So this is the difference. When it comes down to the real God versus everything and everyone else out there, God is very specific, and he gives us very concrete information. And that's the case with the coat of arms and who the Antichrist is. It's not some nebulous thing, and that's what I'm showing in the Antichrist in the Cup of Tea. You know, that's what I show with the fiery red horse, you know, with North Korea Iran, in the coming World War, that the second seal of the apocalypse is literal. But there are four seals that have horses uh, in the book of Revelation. They're all literal, J.V., not just the fiery red horse. You know, and in fact, when we talk about the fourth horseman, uh, whose rider, the fourth horse's rider is named Death, which is you know another name in this case for the Antichrist when he's possessed by Satan during that period where he's ruling for three and a half years, that rider is riding what is typically translated as an ashen horse or uh, a gray horse. Mm-hmm. But the Greek text describes it as a pale green gray horse. That's what the Greek text means. In other words, it has the color of rotting human flesh. It's talking about a horse that has a, a like a, a greenish hue or tint to it that's gray white, and it turns out that the unicorn on Prince Charles' coat of arms has that exact coloration. Wow. It's the fourth horse. Wow, of the four horses of the apocalypse. Well, the other two, the first and the third, also literally exist, and I identify them. Uh, in the second edition of the Antichrist and Cup of Tea. So all of these symbols that even Christians thought were too far out or too strange to be literal, uh, in the book of Revelation, even Christians who say Scripture is literal, we believe it, we think it's from God through his prophets, through real prophets, that it's reliable, even those Christians have had a hard time taking these things literally. And I'm showing them, because God has called me to do this, that really, they actually are literal. But they're also metaphorical and symbolic, J.V., so those camps are not wrong. So, for example, this coat of arms of Prince Charles that represents him individually in heraldry and is unique to him under international law so that no one else does have or could ever have the same combination of symbols on a coat of arms legally. Those symbols represent a group of nations. So the beast that is a lion-leopard bear on his coat of arms ordinarily is a lion or lion leopard for England. His is unusual because of its feet. The unicorn on his coat of arms ordinarily represents Scotland. The red dragon on his coat of arms represents Wales. It's their national symbol now. Uh, The harp on his coat of arms represents Ireland, and it's the Davidic harp. Ireland took the symbol from the Arch of Titus, Historically, that was carried away by the Romans from the Second Temple after they sacked and destroyed the temple. So Ireland adopted the Davidic harp, and that harp is on Prince Charles' coat of arms. The lion, leopard, bear, beast is pawing it, which, by the way, represents the conflict between the IRA and the UK, England. In this case, symbolically, on the coat of arms. (laughs) Anyway, all of these symbols and others that are on the coat of arms, represent a group of nations. In this case, they're the core nations of the United Kingdom and of the nation that is over the British Commonwealth, which comprises roughly a quarter of the world's population. And that's significant because a quarter of the world's population is referenced in connection with the rider of the fourth horse, that that fourth seal's rider in Revelation, which I've said, is that unicorn on Prince Charles' coat of arms. So it all ties in. It's actually all very literal, surprisingly so.
0: Yeah, it's this is amazing uh, work you've done, Tim. And um, sadly, we're out of time because I've got more questions, and uh, I know you have answers. So we're going to have to get you back on the program at some point. But once again, let people know where they can get a hold of the books because the answers that you would respond to me with are in the books.
1: Yes, thank you. So uh, the Antichrist, and the Cup of Tea, the second edition, can be pre-ordered through prophecyhouse.com. My other books, some of them can be pre-ordered, but the ones that are published can be gotten there, as well as related materials like CD and DVD sets. So that's prophecyhouse.com. And if you'll permit me, J.V., let me just uh, ask folks to also subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is relatively new, and I need more subscribers desperately so that I can get a proper URL, and I'll be putting a lot of things out uh, through that channel over time. And then... um, you know, uh, come join me on Facebook, too.
0: Yeah, how would they um, find the YouTube channel? Is it just your name?
1: Yeah, YouTube.com forward slash Timothy Cohen. So just type in YouTube.com, enter the forward slash, and then type in Timothy Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, enter, and then you'll go right there. And then for Facebook, it's Facebook uh, Facebook.com forward slash author Tim Cohen, C-O-H-E-N.
0: Well, um, I'm not going to say you didn't scare the hell out of everybody tonight, but uh, but regardless, uh, some real real great work and terrific information. And Thanks for being here, and we're going to have you back soon.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: If you missed it, go back and listen to part one of this episode, found both right here on YouTube and on the podcast distribution system.